I have to pay Whole Foods to do a, a promotion. All of a sudden, that's eleven thousand dollars. It's like that's just a gift to you, retailer. Thank you for having us. I don't think that everyone really understands the actual profitability of each retailer. We pulled out of a major retailer because they don't all have to be wildly profitable. But if they're not wildly profitable, then they have to be really great marketing channels. They can be break even as long as like they're building awareness, let's say. But if they're not doing that particularly well, and you're bleeding money just for the sake of having another icon on your deck, that has passed. Unfortunately, the last several years put a lot of founders into a really bad position where they now are cash strapped. They have. Somewhat predatory investors that are getting really great deals. They're working harder than ever. I think the whole thing is in deep need of a reset. I just don't love the collateral damage that's going to happen with the reset. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over twenty years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey: the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. Prepare to set sail on an enlightening expedition and cover hats one, three, four, and six: the soul, the servant, the entrepreneur, and the philanthropist. As we dive deep into an enthralling discourse with Allison Kane, a pioneering entrepreneur, culinary expert, and relentless advocate for redefining a relationship with food. Allison's unbeatable drive and enthusiasm have placed her squarely at the crossroads of the food and CPG universe, artfully interpreting the nuances of crafting innovative brands, championing consumer education, and promoting healthier dietary choices. The founder of a cooking school in New York, and then following her successes by transitioning her skill sets and starting a CPG brand, Haven's Kitchen. So, if you're poised to plunge into a world where food meets innovation, explore the vast landscape of consumer choices, and witness the incredible influence of informed decisions, let's warmly welcome Allison to the Seven Hats. Allison, welcome to the Seven Hats. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. We had a first fun conversation, so this is going to be a good second one. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm absolutely thrilled to have this conversation with you today. Having been an admirer of your products before having the pleasure of meeting you and then discovering more about your journey and your incredible skills has given me such a profound respect for you. Oh, thank you. You're a truly amazing woman, balancing numerous hats, which we love here, <laughs> from being a mother of five and a dynamic entrepreneur to an accomplished podcast host. So today, we're going to delve deeply into your journey, unveiling the wisdoms and insights that you've accumulated along the way. But before we pull back the curtain on the secret sauce, and I put that in quotes, hair quotes, of your success, our seven hatters would love and would be thrilled to learn more about you. 
but the experiences and circumstances mm-hmm. that sculpted your journey. So, Allison, let's get things rolling with mm-hmm. where were you born and how was your childhood like? Uh, big question. I was born in New York City in 1972 which was a really amazing time actually in New York, kind of a bit like now, I would say. You know, oil crisis, financial crisis, New York had a bankruptcy crisis. You know, my friend's parents were sculptors and speech writers and musical writers. And it wasn't quite the uh, shiny financy vibes of the 1980s yet. It was still pretty gritty. And uh, I was a typical Gen X latchkey kid. You know, we kind of joke like we there was no keeping track of us. No one really seemed to care where we were most of the time. And with that came, again, a lot of independence and creativity and just figuring stuff out and building things, some survival skills. Yeah. And all of it kind of culminated, I think, in in a generation of New Yorkers that I'm not that unique. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and siblings? None. None. So you're an only child. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and what did your parents do? So interestingly, my mother was a speech pathologist and then got a PhD in neuropsych. She was studying or working most of the time My father was a professional bridge player until he started working on Wall Street and then became one of those shiny 80s finance types. So that first, you know, half of my childhood was living in very different circumstances than the second half of my childhood. Lots of tailwinds going on then. And um, my, you know, I, I think my mother was of a generation that was really working hard to get out of domestic duties. So cooking was not something that she was doing. And um, Mm -hmm. it gave me free reign of the kitchen. So I quickly became sort of the cook in the house. And my way of getting us to be together as a family was making dinner or chicken salad sandwiches or stuff like that (laughs) when I was eight, nine, ten. I made Thanksgiving when I was nine. It did not go well, but it was a nice effort. So they um, they both worked. They were both, you know, very ambitious, which was cool. And I was sort of, you know, the domestic one. <laughs> 12 years old, I think. Same here. My parents were working. They were mm-hmm. immigrants. So when we came to New York, actually, we that was our first city. We landed from Israel back in 1982. Mm-hmm. And I was nine years old. I was actually mm-hmm. born in 73. So just a year mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And I remember 12 years old, I was like, okay, well, if I want to eat, I, I might right. as well cook because otherwise totally. I'm not eating. Right. So yes. I decided to make pasta and sauce and surprise my parents. Uh-huh. And 12 years old, I put the pasta in. I was like, it's in easy. The I put the water, pasta in the cold water, probably. No, it was actually I, hot water. It was, was good. It? it was hot right. water. That's a but step I put ahead. It in, yeah. It's a step ahead. But I put it in for about a minute until it all became pasta-ish. And then mm-hmm. I took it out because it looked like pasta, put some right. sauce on top of it. And then not only my parents, but I think there were three other people that came over for uh-huh. dinner. And right. they're all trying to eat the pasta and trying to make me feel good. But no, it was a disaster. So, yeah, yeah. I have a story where I decided to roast corn over the gas 
burner. And I took, my parents were really into fondue as were uh-huh. like New York 70s people. We used to have fondue on my parents' bed. Oh, wow. Like the three of us, that's not, it's like a massive firehouse. But basically they had these really <laughs> long forks with these two little prongs yep. for the fondue. And I tried to roast corn and I just put it into the like, and it just came right out. Oh. Yeah. And I was walking around with this like, pitchfork in my hand and no one, you know, I was like, well, I guess, you know, I don't, I guess I should just pull this out. I mean, yeah, I have some funny left alone in the kitchen at nine or 10, you know, it's just kind of funny to look back. Please. In my thirties, I was still making stupid mistakes with (laughs) knives. And (laughs) so it's not an age thing. So tell me about your dad seemed like he was a pretty ambitious and rigid type of guy. I'm sure your life was very organized in some way, right? Because he was a bridge player and that determined, there's a skill set to that. And then mm-hmm. in Wall Street, how was he towards you? What, what did he expect of you? And how was that growing up? Yeah, it's funny because my father passed away a couple of years ago. And I guess it's like a year and a half ago. And, you know, as, as much of a discipline as both Bridge and Wall Street kind of had. My father was always the outsider. He was the naughty one. He was the games player. He didn't have a college degree. He was a gambler at heart. And he saw the whole world and life as a big game in a lot of ways. And so he was always thinking strategically, well, if they make this move, I'll make that move. He got kicked out of casinos when he was young for counting cards. He wasn't allowed to go back to the backgammon tournament. You know, he was naughty in a lot of ways (laughs) and honest and a deeply generous person, but polarizing for sure and naughty. And being his only daughter was probably the most amazing, you know, because he just thought I was the bee's knees. He thought everything was clever and everything was funny. And until it wasn't, you know, until I did something like that didn't make him happy, in which case the sun very much went behind the cloud and I was scared that Mm. it would never, ever come back out. But, you know, People with big personalities like that, that just have a ton of power and charisma. I think the assets of being the children of those people are kind of amazing and, and the liabilities are a little intense too. You know, it's it's a little scary. You don't want to disappoint them. But at the end of the day, he always had my back and he trusted my instincts, which was amazing. And I think about him every single day. Yeah. Sorry about the loss. He was ready. Yeah. So growing up, like school-wise, so you went to Mm -hmm. high school and college, what was the focus and what did you want to do at that time? It's interesting. What I wanted to do was have a lot of kids. I mean, that Mm. was what I wanted to do as a kid. Why is that? I think because I was alone most of the time and I, I looked sort of jealously at my friends who had a lot of siblings and my whole life was sort of influenced by the Brady Bunch and eight is enough. And, you know, it was big families and everyone around the table. And, you know, I didn't pick up on the dysfunction or like, where were Bobby's mom? You know, like I didn't pick up on any of that. It was more just like, oh, this is what a normal quote unquote family must be like. And so that meant 
kids and that meant cooking and that meant, you know, going on picnics and riding bicycles and things that I just never did and never learned how to do. Professionally, I don't think that I gave myself enough credit for thinking that I would have much to add to Hmm. the professional sphere. I think I domesticated myself really quickly, which of course is just a complete backlash to my experience in retrospect. I always liked teaching. I was always, you know, tutoring the younger kids on the school bus or, you know, I was always babysitting. And so I kind of figured I would teach. I was really interested in history, always about the patterns of human behavior that never, ever seem to change. And we're always surprised when weird stuff happens. It's happened a lot before. And then in college, I got really into urban development and urban planning and public policy. And that was sort of the beginning of like my, what turned out to be kind of how my career ended up. So how, what happened after college? What did you do? What was the first business experience? Yeah, I worked for a public, private, city, state. It was like a three-part partnership on the 42nd Street Development Project. So it was, you know, taking... 42nd Street, basically between Broadway and 8th Avenue. I was the I was the person who at 12.01 a.m. was going into these apartments <laughs> and these businesses with eviction notices, which is a strange oh. thing to put a 23-year-old, you know, young woman into, but it was kind of interesting. I was the person who would go to the public hearings and get things thrown at me, you know, because I was gentrifying. Single-handedly, I was gentrifying New York City. But I was also the one who got to work with the Jenny Holzer quotes that were on the theaters on 42nd Street that were sort of iconic. And I got to give Disney their first tour of the New Amsterdam Theater. Nice. Yeah, there were mushrooms growing in a bunch of the theaters. It was <laughs> it was fascinating. So it was it was really cool. I definitely got thrown into craziness, but it scratched a lot of itches and it was really fun. And I did that for a few years and then ended up teaching nursery school. And then I had five babies pretty much right after each other. So I took myself out of the professional sphere for a minute. Yeah, but I, I do love your story. I mean, especially your path to entrepreneurship. So that was kind of your beginning. And then you started bringing in additional family members, but you opened up your cooking school. Yeah. Right after having your children, I believe your youngest was in kindergarten back then. Yes. Mm -hmm. Tell us how the sequence of events influenced your approach to business and motherhood from opening the school to also managing family life, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it was challenging. I got divorced the same year that I opened the school. Um, Oh, wow. I don't know if those two things are causal or just you know, happy accidents, but they did happen pretty much within the same month. Mm. And and how many kids did you have when you got divorced? Five under 12. You had already five kids when you, mm-hmm. so when you opened a school, you already had five mm-hmm. kids. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Continue. Sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I basically, what happened was I went back to get a master's in um, food systems and food studies, thinking I would go back into policy work. Didn't love working for the government. Uh, lots of red tape. I'm a little faster moving than that just internally. So that didn't seem like it was going to be a great fit, but I didn't think that there would be, I mean, there was no like career path to opening a cooking school. So I didn't know what was going to happen. 
I ended up getting an internship at the Green Market in Union Square. And it was sort of my dream job because it was literally going back to everything I loved. I was giving tours of the farmer's market. I was teaching kids three to 18 about food and where it came from and how their choices impact the larger system. And I was teaching cooking in my house. And so, you know, I kind of came home one day and I sat at the table with the family and I was like, you know, I think I'm going to open a cooking school at some point, just something small near the farmer's market. I'm going to wait. I'm going to maybe in a couple of years, you know, and then my kids joke like the next day I had signed a lease and like hired a team. And so when I have the idea, I think it ends up just kind of, I need to do it kind of quickly. Like I like to act on it. And there was a need. There was a need in New York City. You know, Michael Pollan had just come out with Omnivore's Dilemma. People were just starting like the Brooklyn Renaissance, you know, craft foods, you know, all of this stuff was happening. Again, it was sort of this like post recession. People had a lot of creative energy and not a ton of job opportunities. And so they were making pickles and mustard and jam and kimchi and And then people wanted to learn how to make their own food because they started recognizing that maybe there's a connection to their health and, you know, what is organic, you know, all of that. And there wasn't anything like it in New York. So I, you know, thought I was opening a little place. I ended up opening a bigger place. And then the rest is kind of history. The Mm -hmm. cooking school turned into the sauces and here we are. I I love Omnivore's Dilemma. It was one of the first like Mm -hmm. real food books that I, that I read. It was awesome. But I, I, let me tap into, I think, an aspect that's going to be very helpful to the listeners. Absolutely. So one of your investors once said that if you put your money into someone, it will be a mom with many kids. And yeah. as a mother of five, <laughs> how do you balance your responsibilities? I mean, I don't have any kids and mm-hmm. I'm dying with my schedule. So yeah. What superpowers do you possess that and can share with our seven hatters? And what specific techniques or strategies have worked well for you? Because yeah. not everybody has five kids, but damn, like one or two kids, and I'm sure they're struggling. So so what yeah. what do you suggest? Well, I think first of all, any any parent that gives advice, I take with a grain of salt, right? Because we're all really good at giving advice, but the reality yeah. is, is it's really, really hard. The other reality is, is that if I didn't have the resources to pay for support with childcare or filling out five medical forms before school every year, I would probably be under my bed right now and not <laughs> here talking to you. So all of this goes with the caveat of the privilege that I had to have help. Mm -hmm. That I think is just really important because I think when people think that they should be able to handle this stuff and it looks like other people can handle this stuff. And then you have someone like me coming on a podcast being like, yeah, here are my tips for managing my everything. (laughs) Like it's, it it actually can make people feel worse. So I certainly don't want to do that. That said, you know, there is, um, there are kind of two pieces to parenting. One is sort of the psychosocial, emotional, I hear you, I see you, I feel you, I'm here for you. You are not alone. You have unconditional love. You know, that includes playing with them and being with them, and, you know, doing things that they're interested in. The other part is fully administrative. 
right? And yeah. it's just, like I said, camp forms, medical forms. Every time you go to a new doctor, you have a 20-page thing waiting to make an appointment with the doctor, waiting to get the, I mean, it's just, if you can get some support with the administrative piece, yeah, your life will be much easier. The part that the kids really notice and care about is, you know, my son, again, I was like a single mom. I had a son who was obsessed with soccer. I started playing soccer with him, not very well, but it was, you know, <laughs> that was my way of showing him that I was interested in what he was interested in. And it was maybe 30 minutes, a couple days a week, you know, and he knew that I saw him as a person and that I cared. And I haven't filled out a form for them in a long time because again, fortunately, I was able to sort of, you know, delegate that. I think those are pretty key. You know, it's the same with when you're teaching people to cook or you are in customer service or you're in a relationship with a partner. There's no secret answer. It's just, I'm here to listen to you and I'm not judging your feelings or your reactions. And I'm going to help you communicate through this. And sometimes you might feel like a hug. Sometimes you might just feel like you know, venting. Sometimes you want some solutions. But if you don't build the trust in the relationship, then you end up missing the mark on a lot of that stuff later. Did you have a conflict? There's always pros and cons, right? So the the pro mm -hmm. of having help and support is that you can focus on your business and, and your kids are going to be alive. But mm -hmm. the, the con is... is that is important. The con is you're not spending as much time with your kids. Do you have that inner conflict? And was there any time, because business, I'm sure, got really stressful multiple mm -hmm. times. Was there any time you're like, you know what, screw this. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going back to my family and figure it out. The great news about having, my, my business was a brick and mortar cooking school with a cafe in front for yeah. the first eight years. So they came there after school. Every one of my mm. kids worked at the POS. Every one of them did their homework at the at the counter. Or the you know, nice. I did move pretty immediately close to the business because just commuting, it, even within Manhattan, was going to take too much time. I also worked for myself, so you know, my team knew that there were certain things that I just had to do and I had to be at. But you know, those things made it easier. You know, I was the barista every Saturday for, I think the first year that we were in business and I brought my kids with me and there's nothing more fun for like a seven-year-old than learning how to work the cash register. Like I'm sure <laughs> I, I, it still is fun, you know, teaching them how to count back from the $5 bill, you know, one eighty, yeah. $2, $3, $4, like they all still, you know, so I was lucky that way. You know, I didn't have a corporate job. I was working for myself. What they did learn pretty quickly is that, you know, there have definitely been times where they're like, wait, if you work for yourself, why can't you just make your own schedule? I'm like, haha, that's the rub, friends. Like when you work for yourself, everybody is a stakeholder and you report to everybody. Yes. But that said, I'm still, you know, I can still make my own schedule a lot of the times. Not all the time. No, it's, it's true. I mean, I, I left corporate 
after many years and I was complaining about a nine to five job and I was like, I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to have my own schedule. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. it's totally not words. the way. Yeah. yeah famous last words. Yeah. I ended up working twice as hard and really it's impossible to manage your schedule fully. Uh, there's always yep. going to be a fire that you need to, totally. to work through. Speaking of fires, yeah. So you're running a successful cooking school, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you had this bright idea. Okay, I'm making sauces, and they're they're really mm-hmm. good, and people love it. So let me start a CPG brand. Yeah, <laughs> Fav- yeah. Th- that, wow. That's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So when and why yeah. did you do it? And especially in a market that's as competitive as perishable food products. I mean, who warned you? Who didn't warn you? Mm. Tell us about that shift. Everyone warns you, everyone warns you, but the same people that warned me about opening a cooking school in New York City. Why would you open a retail brick and mortar business in the food space? I'm like, ah, because I think I can make it work. I mean, we all like founders are nuts, you know, like (laughs) what makes us think we're going to be the one out of the 100, you know, that do it and that make it. I think what happened for me was I, I tend to kind of like take information in and then like themes start to kind of pop up. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of take those themes and see what's actionable. It, not really on purpose, but that's just kind of how it works for me. So a couple of things were happening in 2017. One mm-hmm. was pretty much every student that I was teaching said something along the lines of, I have subscribed to a meal kit and I unsubscribed immediately, but I kept the sauce Mm. because I don't need the little bags of like ingredients, but the flavor is great. And I can't get that in a grocery store. That was kind of like key indicator one. The other was that we were a cooking school at heart, but where we really made our money was doing events and activations for CPG companies, hair care companies that were launching products that had CLG in it or PayPal had no hidden fees. So everything was in some sort of like hidden, you know, we were able to create these incredible food experiences Um, for these companies, everyone, I mean, Instacart had their first event at Haven's Kitchen, Siggy's Yogurt. I mean, just name them. We did them all. So I was starting to see all of this sort of different companies and the way that they were taking their brands and they were making them into experiences. And I thought, hmm, like there might be something there for us. And then the third thing was for me, just on a human level, you know, the reason why I opened a cooking school was to help people feel more confident cooking because it is good for them and good for the like environment. But my core business wasn't actually doing that. My core business was fundamentally a caterer. And Mm. so I started feeling more and more removed, you know, and so I, I really thought like, can I solve for all of these? You know, can I give people a new take on something to put on their salmon or steak or cauliflower? Can I get into more people's kitchens? And how do I use this pouch almost as like, now we're in your kitchen and we're going to open up this world of opportunity for you rather than having you come and try to get a seat in at our table. 
And then the third was, I think I've kind of learned a lot about the way that these companies are thinking about brand and thinking about community. And we already have a community. So now maybe we can build a brand. A lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the food space, they have a recipe that was passed down from generation to generation. And and they mm-hmm. just, they want to bring it out to the market. They They have this sentimental feeling about it. They want to help the world taste what they taste. Mm-hmm. What was it like converting your recipes from scratch, you know, from home and school, because you're mm-hmm. just making individual portions mm-hmm. into a sellable product or packaged product, especially the pouch idea, Yeah, you know, with a UPC. Walk us through the formulation and and what were some of the initial and maybe current challenges that you're faced? Yeah. You know, it came in stages, right? So the chimichurri that was originally on the shelf in our cooking school in a quart container is the same chimichurri that you get in the pouch now. It's all just fresh ingredients, chopped up, extra virgin olive oil. You know, we we had to cut it with a little bit of sunflower oil so it doesn't like get too cloudy and hard in the pouch in the Mm -hmm. fridge. But that was, that's been straight through, never altered it. It's what's in my cookbook. (laughs) It's right there. Something like the, you know, we had a coconut cashew. We have a coconut cashew that used to be sort of a Thai peanut. Yeah. Anything that has lemongrass or garlic cannot use fresh in America because of listeria. So we had to learn what IQF meant. You know, we had to start using some frozen ingredients because they're literally just like not allowed in the United States to be on the market, you know, learning the difference between sort of a a ingredient that is wonderful to have because it has a certain flavor, but it's really esoteric and maybe hard to find and hard to scale. That took some time. I think what we've learned is that you know, we had, I think, 57 unique ingredients and five SKUs or something like that, <laughs> which is, again, not a formula for your margin. But, you know, that's the great news about HPP. It's, you know, high pressure pasteurization. You can have pretty much as close to exactly what you would make in your home kitchen. And it just uses pressure, you know, as long as you keep it refrigerated to kill you know, any of the critters that you don't want there, but you don't kill any of the flavor and you get all of this amazing sort of fresh taste, you know? So it's been a journey. In the beginning, did you experience a high rate of turns or spoilages with the product as you learned? Like, what was that like? No, you know, I think I might've told you the story about our first PO and I, you know, we were making it in an incubator kitchen and we were so relieved and high-fiving and ready to like sleep for a night. And then we got a second PO for like four times the amount. And I found myself like on the floor crying. (laughs) Our issue was always on the other side. Our issue was always being able to fulfill and keep up with demand, um, fortunately, which, you know, people are like, great problem to have. It's actually not a great problem to have. And it's really scary. And retailers do not like it when you do not fulfill their orders and you can't grow with them. Fortunately, you know, we went from incubator kitchen to a small co-packer and now we're in a, you know, a bigger co-packer that can grow with us and scale. You know, it's, they're very fundamental economic laws of, you know, you're never going to have the exact same demand as you have supply and you just have to mitigate 
the downside of, of having too much or having too little. But we've grown slowly, but, you know, I think steadily. So we haven't overwhelmed our system yet, which is, which is really good. And we're still learning and tweaking things to make it even more efficient. Well, I mean, getting POs, that's great. As, as you said, and it's also scary, mm-hmm. but there's a step before that, right? So was getting uh, the product onto retail shelves difficult? I mean, especially at Whole Foods, mm-hmm. who was the first one and what does it take just for those who are starting out to actually get on a shelf when you have a product? I think there's sort of the the theoretical, what does it take, which is it takes having a product that solves a problem that a lot of people have repeatedly. Yes. That's what it takes. If you are making something that genuinely helps people live a more comfortable life and they need it often and they will buy it often, that is conceptually what it takes. You need to be able to do that where you have, you know, at least a 40% gross margin, especially now. So there's a lot of things that you need to think about. In terms of actually getting onto shelves, we were really fortunate because, you know, I, I roll up to the fancy food show. We've hand squeezed some sauce into these pouches that we got on the internet. We stuck on a sticker, you know had our logo from the cooking school and whatever on it and went to the fancy food show in 2017 in New York. And John Lawson from Whole Foods kind of walks over and, you know, we're in like what I call the new kids on the block aisle. I don't think that's what it's actually called, but I call it that. And that's where he goes first every summer. And he was like, these look interesting. And he said, you know, what's the shelf life? And I said, not, not really sure. And he (laughs) said, how, what's the price? I'm like, TBD, you know? And, and it was great because he really, he really incubated the brand. I, I think that that happens less now, especially at Whole Foods. But the reality is, is that if you make a product and you are very clear about the need state, as they call it, right, of the consumer, you know, what What we missed was where does it go in the store? And that has been our number one problem because yeah. not only does, does it not have a natural home in the store, but each store is different. And that's, that's not a great formula because consumers don't want to search for you. Yeah, They want it to be sort of consistent across retailers. But we haven't really had that much of a problem. You know, we, we pretty quickly racked up a lot of like the natural channel stores and we are cranking in that. I mean, we just risen to, you know, first in our category. We really are, you know, breaking ground, I think, and, and really supporting retailers. Conventional and mass seems to be a little bit more challenging for a fresh product in a pouch that people don't really know what to do with. Yeah. So it's, it's ongoing. I'll keep you posted. Can you go through distribution with a fresh product or do you have to go direct? No, you, you pretty much have to go through distribution. We, I mean, we're going direct with Sprouts. It has, again, its assets and its liabilities, right? The great news about yeah. going through a distributor is that you also get pull to that distributor from other accounts. So, you know, we're never, mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, I th- eventually we'll be able to fill up a whole truck. But when you're, you know, LTL, you have very little control over your own destiny and it can take a month to get across the country. 
literally. Yeah. So it's better if you're refrigerated, I would say, unless you have massive capacity to do distributor at the beginning. How do you deal with the fact that there's a shelf-stable aisle mm-hmm. where most people just mm-hmm. instinctively go to mm-hmm. for their sauces and dressings and you're on the outer aisle mm-hmm. you know next to the mushrooms and the herbs and mm-hmm. right and and the, and the fresh salad dressings now but I mean, you were probably one of the first pioneers mm-hmm. what's the dynamic there and how do you deal with it so you know i'm really a believer that and you probably know this this is this is something i learned the hebrew word midos mm-hmm. right it's like a character trait but it also means measure yep and i think the lesson there is that you know just like anything competitive that's a trait it can be great it can be damaging it's just about mitigating right kindness if you're kind to too many people you end up actually hurting people so every single thing in life has assets and liabilities and the asset is the liability depending on how much of it, the measure of it, right? So in our case, being fresh is a massive asset. Consumers are looking to fresh for better for you. They have been told to shop the perimeter of the store if they want to be healthier. There's much less competition. You know, we can be a premium price the velocity expectations are, you know, a little different. Like everything, there are a lot of, there are a lot of assets to being in a place where you're not expected, in a place where consumers are going for a certain type of product and experience. You know, the liability is that you have to do a lot more consumer education. You have to do a lot more buyer education. We don't have a home. Mm-hmm. We're competing with products, you know, dressings are $4.99. They're not $6.99. They're not $7.99. Nothing's in a pouch. Why? Yeah. What is Romesco? Yeah. You know, so we have a lot of, um, yeah. you know, you live and you learn, right? The next product will not have as much consumer education. And we're going to have a different set of assets and a different set of liabilities. And that is just the nature of life. You know, if you're doing anything, it's going to have its... It's great part and it's not great part. And if if you're making something that's truly unique and different, then that's just par for the course. I speak with brands and founders all the time. Mm-hmm. And one thing that sneaks up on them that they don't really think about when they first start is trade spend. Oh, yes. And with my company, Promash, because I was a brand founder, mm-hmm. uh, recovering brand founder now, And uh, I basically failed in retail because I wasn't able to manage my trade um, effectively. And with ProMesh, we redefined CPG, literally redefined it because CPG stands for consumer packaged goods. Mm -hmm. But we're like, when I failed, I was like, wait a second, why did I fail? What's going on? Started speaking with other founders and figured that we're all dealing with the same problem. And there are three aspects to running a CPG business that's so important. CPG actually, in the, we coined it, uh, cash flow, profitability, and growth. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at what's most important for any CPG brand, you have to find a road to profitability. Yeah. Right? That's kind of number one. Well, people forgot that over the last several years, right? <laughs> Don't even get me started there. That's another podcast. <laughs> and then cash flow, right? You got to manage your cash flow and you got to understand your spending. 
and then growth. Brands just try to grow too quickly without Mm -hmm. having the profitability and cash flow nailed down. So I had one brand speak with me. They were in 200 stores and then they wanted to grow. They sprouts approached them and they wanted to grow into another 400 stores. And I asked them a question. Are you profitable in the first 200 stores? And they're like, no, no, we're not profitable. And then I asked them another question. How much cash do you have? Oh, like Uh $200,000. I said, I don't know if I can help you. I think you should call the buyer and call it off because you're going to get discontinued anytime soon. Right. I mean, in the next few months. So. Tell us a little bit about Tradesman because it's really about allocating your spend effectively, getting the data to understand the mm-hmm. retailer side of profitability, not your company right. profitability, and then deductions. Deductions right. are just going to come and hit you because the distributors right. are not going to lose it's any part money. Of their right? model. If, you, if they yeah. overbuy, which happens, it's part of their model. They, they'll overbuy on an OI, off mm-hmm. invoice, right? And then not sell it and then send it back with a right. deduction as spoiled product. So tell us about that experience with trade and and how did you deal with it? Well, it's funny because when you said that you redefined CPG, I thought you were going to say instead of consumer packaged goods, it's customer packaged goods because the background to everything that you just said is that we are not selling to consumers. We are selling to mm. customers. We're selling that's a great point, by yeah. the way. I really want people to understand that you're, you're kind of selling to consumers. To, to consumers on the back end. You're marketing to them. You're doing demos and you're speaking with them on that end. But really, the, the interaction and the relationship is with the the, the retailer or direct customer, right. they call it, the retailer or the distributor. Yeah. So, I mean, what's conflicting is that, you know, UNFI is a service provider, but they're also my customer. So... That is an inherently fraught relationship. You know, I mean, I don't really know what to make of that. But, you know, I think going going back to your, you know, what you don't realize. I mean, I remember, again, going back to the cooking school. I remember looking at the POS system and hitting a million dollars in sales. It was, you know, nine months into our first year. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, we made a million dollars. And then I remember my bookkeeper being like, (laughs) you lost 200, you know, whatever. And I was like, wait, what? And I'm a pretty bright gal. (laughs) I just couldn't imagine where did all the money go? Like, where did it all go? You know, people are buying this stuff. They love what you're making. That is very rarely, I mean, sometimes it's the problem, but a lot of times it's not the problem. People are loving it. But to your point, you know, you need cash to fuel growth. And I think over the last several years, we have been lulled into sort of forgetting that because cash has been less expensive. People have been able to raise money. So you have, you know, all these investors that are sort of what we call like tourist investors, you know, oh, I, you know, feel like investing in my favorite chip company now. Like, and so we forgot that, this was actually rather expensive to do. And, you know, we'll figure out margins. And and you know what? We're going to get acquired so quickly that someone else will figure out the margins, right? Game over. Yeah. Go, go years done, which yeah. is great. I think it's great yep. because just like in 1980, just like in 2011, right? You have all of this pent up creativity. You have to get super scrappy. You're not going to spend on things that don't make sense. There's going to be a lot of really cool stuff that's going to come out, right? 
you know, I think yeah. trade spend is one of those things that it's a, I, I still, I'm like, can you define it again to my finance team? I'm like, wait, there's, there's trade spend that is, you know, I have to pay Whole Foods to do a, you know, a promotion all of a sudden that's $11,000, you know, I'm like, people don't really care if it's on promotion. It's yeah. like, that's just a gift to you retailer. Thank you for having us. Right. Yeah. And then there's the OI stuff, which is obviously, you know, more yes. the distributor and you have to keep them happy. I don't think that everyone really understands the actual profitability of each retailer. We pulled out of a major retailer because, you know, they don't all have to be wildly profitable, but if they're not wildly profitable, then they have yeah. to be really great marketing channels, right? They can be break even as long as like they're yeah. building awareness, let's say. Yeah. But if they're not doing that particularly well and you're bleeding money just for the sake of having another icon yeah. on your deck, that has passed. Yeah. Unfortunately, the last several years put a lot of founders, I think, who would have figured that out over a couple of years into a really bad position where they now are cash strapped. They have somewhat predatory investors that are you know, getting really great deals. They're working harder than ever. I think the whole thing is in deep need of a reset. I just don't love the collateral damage that's going to mm -hmm. happen with the reset. Yeah. A, a little tip for those entrepreneurs who have brands that are listening, because it really hits on exactly what you were saying. You got to have margin. I would say even more well, than 40. Fresh, 40 yeah. is the bare minimum. You're If you got 50, if you got a 50 or 60% margin in, right. in food and beverage, that's if you can get there. Well, I'm talking about before... Before trade spend, you should be in the high 50s, low 60s if you can. Before trade spend. Oh, yeah, for sure. Some of my friends are, you know, higher than that. But then you start compromising a little bit on the quality of the product and the, you know, the innovation yeah. of the product. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, you should just assume you're going to eat 20 points right off your margin for the first few years, if not more. And it's going to be yeah. hidden and quiet and you're not going to really know. You know, for the first couple of years, one of my investors used to say, you're like flying a plane without the coordinates. You know, how do you, I don't even know what altitude yeah. I'm at. Because I was looking at a model yeah. and I thought I understood it. But then there were all these things that were just happening that I didn't, I didn't know. We were mm -hmm. in skincare. The, my company was was a skincare line and we had about 75% mm. margin. And a 75% margin, the only better margin right. you can get is with legal substances. Yeah. So so you got some pretty good margin there and we still failed. That's why we created ProMesh because the tip to the young entrepreneurs out there, here's what you do. If you don't if you can't get a platform and a service like us as an example, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be able to write down every single contract spend that you agree to. Force your brokers, your sales folks, anyone that's dealing with your customers to tell you exactly what they contractually agree to. Then you create a, a forecast of some sort. You understand mm -hmm. your spend month by month. On the other side, when the deductions come through, what I want you to do is look at those deduction invoices line by line. Absolutely. You'll have 400 pages on Kehi. Mm -hmm. Too bad. Look at each one line by line because you got to understand by retailer what that spend is and by exact category and charge code. Because I guarantee you, you're not counting the non-compliance 
deductions and the other deductions you mm-hmm. might not be counting as well in your plan. And so at the end of the year, when your accountant tells you you're $200,000 under, you're like, what the hell? And accountants do that because getting an accountant is like mm-hmm. calling the fire department after the house burned down. <laughs> it's a little too right. late. They tell you things that happened. So you got to be proactive. And when those deduction invoices come through, you really have to understand those line items. So then next year you're planning better. You're taking in right. your damages and returns and shortages and all of these yep. insights about each customer. So now the next thing I'd like for you to do is understand the shipments to each one of those retailers. So now you are now focusing on consumption with the shipments. You're getting to understanding what the revenue looks like. The deductions come in as the, the spend. And now you can create a p right. per retailer to get an insight, an there. indication. Mm-hmm. Where are you, right? So understanding your spend, understanding the back-end deductions, understanding the insights into shipments or POS data, syndicated data, and what you're spending gives you a visual, mm-hmm. just like you, you were talking about with your plane. It's the site and the insight to be able to land that plane right. in New York if you're flying to New York. Otherwise, you'll land in my, you know, Miami someplace. So that's the deal. And I'll add landing, you know, if you do take a look and you realize like, actually, I don't have enough fuel to get to Miami. I got to make an emergency landing in New York. I've found that over the years, every other contract, right? Every service provider, every, you know, PR or growth or, you know, whatever, broker even, you got to be able to get out of those contracts quickly and nimbly. So they all want 90 days. Nobody gets 90 days, right? Like that's why everyone says, Mm -hmm. you know, if you can pay your co-packer, let's say in 45 days, not 30 days, that's a win, right? Because, you know, the slower that the cash goes out and the quicker that the cash comes in, the better. But what happens to a lot of my fellow founders is they get stuck in these, you know, they have to let someone go and they end up not getting any productivity out of that, you know, service for months, but they're still paying the retainer for another couple months. And yeah. everyone's going to fight everyone, everyone, because there's no margin really there for anyone. Right. I mean, again, going back to like the big picture is the American consumer has systematically been taught to devalue food. So we are expected to make very high quality, sustainable products that are innovative and helpful, better for you, also made with amazing ingredients at an inexpensive price. We're not a luxury item where people are willing to spend on a Ferrari, which is arguably less practical, right, than a Subaru. We don't have that. So there's no margin anywhere. And Eric Skay, who's the, um, he runs Carbone and he ran Rayos before that. He always says like, everyone wants a bite of the apple, you know, like, and it's true. And it's not a, (laughs) it's not because anyone's bad or because anyone's, you know, sinister. It's just the way that it is. And the more that you protect yourself against it, you know, the better off you are. Yeah. I, I love that. This, that's the, the tweetable moment. The better you protect yourself to, against the, the aspects of trade that right. come your way, the better chance you have to succeed. And, and most don't. And that's the right. problem. That's what we're trying to fix here is that these entrepreneurs who really are so passionate about changing the world end up just like I did. Right. And it's just not a not a fun way to 
to end that dream. So, well, a lot of us aren't built for that, right? It's, it's kind of going back to what you asked about parenting. There's the administrative piece of it. And then there's the engagement piece of it, right? A lot of founders don't start like consumer goods companies because we want to look at 400 pages of KEHI deductions. Correct. Right. So we want to make products that make people happy and we want to talk about them and we want to see people interact with them. And, and that's all fine. But what ends up happening is I think we're just like, we put our heads in the sand a little bit because it's just overwhelming and exhausting and ridiculous. And we can't even believe that this is the system, you know, and then we get angry and, you know, that doesn't help. Get a Sherpa. Get a Sherpa. I mean, that, but that's the thing, because ultimately you're climbing Mount Everest. And I would say that CPG is harder than climbing Mount Everest. And there's multiple points on your journey that yeah. you're going to fall through a crack and die. So you need to have a Sherpa that tells you, right. stay to the left. It doesn't look, the, that's not the, mm-hmm. you, you might not think that's the right way of approaching it, but stay to the left because going straight mm-hmm. is, you're going to die. And I think no matter who you have, whether it's a co-founder or just a, mm-hmm. a fractional individual who's going to come in just a few hours a week, just to look at your plan, yeah. look at your books and give you insights. Yeah. That's going to change the game for you too. Don't think you can do it yourself. And a lot of people make the mistake of hiring the shiny finance that everyone's using who are really well-educated model makers they are not operators. Yeah. You know, there's a difference between a financial analysis and someone who is operated in a business like ours yeah. who can give you those like there's a crack on the left there, right? Because by the time you look at the model, the damage has already been done. It's got to be like in real time ahead of time, like to your point about, you know, getting the fireman after the fire. Yeah, you make a great point. Others also, I see a lot of startups that raise a little bit of money and then they hire somebody from Kimberly Clark or Nestle or Mars. And the problem there is that, yes, these guys or gals are very established and they're very knowledgeable, but they don't know the startup world. And they're going to bring in what a mega Mm -hmm. brand requires to a startup brand and it's a completely different world. So save your money, find people that have, that are just above the ladder where you are. Right. Those are going to be the ones that are, are the most beneficial for you. Scrappy wins the day. It really does. I think we're learning that over and over. I have a bunch of friends who got to sort of that threshold of revenue where they were, uh, you know, able to attract that type of talent and almost to a person, it has not been aligned. Yeah. It just doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Correct. Some wise words. So let's change the topic. Your passion for the food justice movement is evident. Mm. Um, and you, everyone should watch your TEDx talk. I, I'm always marveled when I speak with, with those that had a TEDx. Can you tell us about a specific moment or event that made you realize the magnitude of the problem in our food system? I was volunteering at a program called Edible Schoolyard in New York City. And I was at an elementary school on 116th Street on the east side, which is about 30 blocks north of one of the most expensive neighborhoods in Manhattan. And um, they, I was talking about, I don't know, I was helping with the gardening and um, something happened with one of the kids. And I, 
I just had this like eureka moment. I don't remember what he said exactly, but you know, I think it occurred to me that at the time, you know, this was like 2010, I guess, you know, I grew up thinking that hunger was outside of America Oh yeah. or hunger was outside of New York. Hunger is right next door. Oh yeah. And I think what happened was I was like this dichotomy, you know, it's, it's, it's walking distance. It's, it's crazy. You know, it, it, it feels obvious now because New York is in a little different of a situation than it was back then. But how is this possible? How is it possible that there's this massive disparity, you know, and, and then there's this sort of assumption that somehow people who are, you know, in poverty have different choices about the food that they want to feed their children. Like it's so classist and elitist and awful. It's, you know, and, and I think I started putting together again, I was also in this master's program that these things are systematic. You know, they have been created by decisions that have been made starting with the green lining and the transportation industry and suburbia, right? Like all the grocery stores moving out of cities. Food deserts aren't just because grocery stores decided to leave. There was a lot of systemized, you know, policy around those decisions. And then there's this like, you know, sort of victim blaming that happens here because we have this like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like kind of, you know, fake American dream mentality that just, it just, it it kind of like kicked my ass a little bit. And, you know, to be fair, there was a part of me that's like, all right, well, here I am opening a bougie cooking school for, you know, people who can spend $150 on a class making pasta. How is that actually being part of the solution? But we were always very careful to be a part of the solution. You know, we use that space for a lot of really good fundraising work. We donated a lot of, you know, not only the space, but also proceeds. We brought awareness to, you know, a bunch of different organizations and initiatives, you know, and hopefully my, my individual work still, still does some of that. You know, food in general, I'm passionate about it as well. I think that it's not just a disparity between the classes where people are starving. I also think that there's a lot of need to revisit the quality of the food that we're providing to our people yeah, because the government is tied in with the different organizations that benefit from poor mm-hmm. quality, poor nutritious foods. Yeah. And we're throwing it to our children, right, yep. in school. And you can't travel the country unless you're eating fast food. It's impossible. So there's a lot of policy that needs to happen. But of course, with the political spectrum of our country, there's just, it's it's so difficult to change the food pyramid to what it should be because it's not the way it is right now. It's not, that's not the right pyramid. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that there, and this goes back to, right, me deciding to go into business, not going back into policy. The reality is, is that I think that we are still a consumer culture. I think capitalism in this country is a stronger pull in a lot of cases than, you know, policy work, right? If we build innovative, better for you brands, and we are able to infiltrate, yeah. right? 
the system with these brands. You know, even something as simple. I remember when Kellogg's bought Kashi. Oh, yeah. Like what, 2012 or 2013 or whatever it was. And there was like an uproar. The reality is... Kashi made Kellogg's a better, a better cereal and a better company. And they brought some better nutrients into what used to be just pure nonsense, right? Yep. There has been innovation does change the system from within. That's why we need to keep innovating. We need to build these businesses. We need to have change, you know, within the, the ingredients that we're using. And we need to convince consumers of our value proposition. Yeah. We need to convince them that this is better for them and that it's worth spending perhaps a little bit more because you're going to end up saving yourself a lot in doctor's bills. For for sure. I think our communication on that as brands are going to be better. Ultimately, you know, policy takes decades to catch up with consumer behavior. Yes. Right. Look at tech. Yeah. Look at TV. Right. I mean, that's why, you know, in my TEDx that is funny that you referenced, it was like a decade ago, you know, every social movement takes 80 to 100 years. And when you put it in the context of that, you know, we had, it took 70 years to dismantle the old system. And there were a lot of positives to that too. The grocery store was a really great invention for a lot of people. It democratized grocery shopping. It took a lot of, you know, it made it a more anonymous, you know, much more egalitarian process and system. And and now we're figuring out sort of the next phase. You know, I, I wouldn't count on government at this point to solve it. Yeah. But I do think that if consumers keep supporting emerging brands and emerging brands continue to innovate and strategics continue to see the value, it has to be value, then, you know, we will make progress. But I don't know if you read this article. It was a couple of weeks ago. It was talking about the Dollar General store and how people are, you know, it's it's interesting. Someone took a photo of the Dollar General store and there were like all these like Mercedes and BMWs parked in front of Dollar General because people will buy a fancy car or a fancy handbag, but they don't want to spend more than a dollar on an avocado. Yeah. You know, we've just, it's been a devaluation of labor, right? Which is, you know, a recipe for disaster and of food. And those two things go hand in hand more than any other industries in the world. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned something, but again, we can have a whole podcast on, and that is human psychology and human behavior and what they deem valuable to themselves. Mm -hmm. And what usually they deem valuable are the things that other people see from the outside. Skincare was not as important as jeans or a, right. or or jewelry, makeup. right? Or makeup, mm-hmm. but because it it takes like a vitamin, right? Right. It takes time for maintenance, but I think it brings me back to post college years. I remember a friend of mine, Russian guy, and in Russian mentality, they have this visual appearance. It's so important to their mm-hmm. to their lives. The guy was driving a hundred twenty thousand dollar Mercedes in 1996, but living with his grandma in a one bedroom apartment and couldn't afford gas. But the image mm-hmm. was that he was a baller. But the the, the reality is that he was struggling. And mm-hmm. I think the same thing happens with with individuals. It's education. I think more than anything, the more you educate consumers to 
focus on their health because it is that vitamin. It doesn't happen. Right. There's no instant result. If it was instant, people would be eating broccoli all day long. Mm-hmm. But it's not instant. And I think that's the problem. It's crazy. The other thing is, I mean, there was a really great study. Again, this is about a decade ago, but you know, for a parent who has a very, very limited budget to spend on food, they're going to buy the food that they know that the family is going to eat. Yeah. Right. You can't take a risk. Yeah. And with any food, especially vegetables, right? It takes six or seven, sometimes 10 average tries before the palate kind of adapts to that food. Yeah. And they don't have that. They don't have seven tries. Yeah. Good point. They got to get in the quick and the easy and the calories. And, and that's why, you know, a a lot of this is just going to be, it goes back to the pressure on brands, right? We just had a whole conversation about what we need to be doing to make sure that we're not bleeding cash. We also now are responsible for educating the American consumer. Yes. You know, we're, we're kind of trying to, you know, hold all of it, which is a lot to ask, you know, (laughs) it is. food brands. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I think right now you have, I think the landscape is better than it was. Now that you go to, you, mm-hmm. walk, to, you walk into Kroger's, you walk into 99 cent store, you walk into Walmart. There's a lot, there are, there are a lot more organic mm-hmm. options and more affordable options. Costco, I mean, half the store is, is natural and organic now. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, there's a lot of really cool things, but I think it's just a, it's a day-to-day movement that needs to happen. And I think over time, when people just become sicker and sicker, they'll realize that they have to make a change. And with their wallet, they'll be able to influence that. And so will the industries. Exactly. Right. So will the insurance industry. I mean, the the reason why big tobacco finally got shut down wasn't because of people. Mm-hmm. It was because the insurance industry got fed up of paying for tobacco's nonsense. Yeah. So at some point, the same thing will likely happen. But, you know, we've got pretty big fish to fry in the meantime. I can speak with you for days, but (laughs) we're limited on time. So I'd like to close on my interviews with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? Well, I would say that it is still in process. I'm still working on it. I think I had to stop being everyone's favorite horse in the race, Mm. everyone's favorite student. I spent a lot of time trying to whack moles of potential problems that people would have with me or my company or that's internal, that's external, it's buyers, it's investors, it's my team. So I had to stop with some of that and I'm still working on it because, you know, that goes back. 50 years. And I think the flip side of that, right, is that I had to start being comfortable that I have a pretty good decision-making process, Hmm. that I can trust that I'm not going to bet the farm, but I'm going to take healthy risk and that I do know what I'm talking about most of the time. And if I don't, that's okay because I'm still learning. And that makes me a better communicator. It also makes this business more attractive, I think, to outside people. I think it makes it better to work with me and, you know, for me, I hope. <laughs> it's made me a better parent. It's made me a better partner. I think it's made me a better friend. I love it. 
tell the seven hatters where they can find you. I know you're launching a new product potentially soon. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that so we can expect it and go it's shopping. <laughs> soon for me is uh, February of 2024. <laughs> so by the time anyone remembers, like they won't, it's fine. In the meantime, you know, we have over 500 recipes on our website, havenskitchen.com. That's where you'll find the store locator. I do also have a cookbook. You can certainly go buy that. The sauces are available in around 3,000 stores across the country. So the store locator is the best place for that. But a lot of people just come to our website to meal plan and spark ideas and learn how to hold a knife and learn how to make fish without it smelling up your house. So we have a YouTube channel, obviously all the different social media channels, but the website's definitely the best place to go. Allison, from a foodie and a CPG founder to a foodie to a C and a CPG founder, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. There's so many nuggets, so many things that I think I learned from this talk. Thank you so much for gracing us on The Seven Hats. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was our second really fun conversation. <laughs> so I really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Alice. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Allison. Let's end today with a show segment that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here is my takeaway. Today's enlightening discussion with Allison has uh, left me with much to ponder. As Allison discussed, the irony of a luxury vehicle parked outside of a budget store speaks volumes about our society's values and priorities. It's a striking image, a symbol of luxury adjacent to a symbol of frugality. But as Allison so keenly highlighted, this contradiction is more than just a curious sight. It's a manifestation of our daily choices. How often have we prioritized appearance over well-being? chasing after material success while sidelining our health. The car we drive might reflect our financial status, but the food we consume reveals a deeper story about our commitment to our health and well-being. After all, a car can be replaced, but our bodies are with us for the duration of our life's journey. Our decision to spend our money on outward appearances to keep up with the Joneses goes beyond individual choices. It's about collective responsibility. The food industry, like all industries, is demand-driven. Our purchasing habits shape the products on the shelf, the ingredient quality, and even the ethical practices behind them. The industry will have to adapt if we demand healthier, sustainable, and ethical food choices. So, in pursuing life's luxuries, let's not forget the basic luxury of good health. Let's value it, invest in it, and cherish it. Because when we nourish our bodies, we nourish our souls. And in a world where external validations often take precedence, let's remember to validate ourselves by our conscious choices for our health and well-being. Before we part ways, I encourage you to reflect on this. How are you prioritizing your health in the grand scheme of your life's ambitions? Are you giving it the importance it truly deserves? It's not just about the years in our life, it's the life in our years, as they say. So prioritize, make conscious choices, and always care for yourself and those you love. I want to thank Allison once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from her wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high-quality people into our 7 Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. 
And until next time, my name is Yuval Selig, and I tip my hat to you. <laughs>